This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to freely study your word. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation. We thank you for those who have gone before who had the vision, the commitment, the understanding to establish this nation on such uh, sound principles. And, Father, we continue to pray that, that we might be worthy of their legacy. Father, we pray for our president, for our both civilian and military leadership, that you might give them wisdom, skill in this war against terrorism, that the plans of the enemy might be uh, broken apart, and that you will continue to protect us from their uh, assaults, their plans, their attempts to destroy, disrupt, to interfere with this nation. Father, we continue to pray for us as believers that we might keep our focus on you, that we might not be distracted by the events of the day, whether they're political or have to do with terrorism, that we might realize you are the God of history, that Jesus Christ controls history, and that all events are marching to your intended goal. And therefore, it is our responsibilities as believers as believers, to take a stand for the gospel, to uh, learn your word, to apply your word, and to advance to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that we would be responsive to its challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing this morning in our study of Revelation. And in Revelation 1 last week, I took a slight departure to talk about the application of these things within the framework of our own spiritual life. The picture that we see in Revelation chapter 1 is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Man moving in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches But beyond that, they represent all of the churches in the church age. And Jesus Christ as the head of the church, as our great high priest, and as the judge of the church is the one who is pictured here as continuously moving within uh, the church. He is pictured as a priest judge, not as a priest king, although he is that, but the picture here is of Jesus Christ as priest judge which emphasizes his ongoing 
present time activity in the church to purify the church through uh, experiential sanctification. We are all sanctified positionally at the instant of salvation. But through the process of spiritual growth, learning the Word of God under the ministry of the Spirit of God, as He fills us and as we exercise our volition to walk by means of the, of the Spirit of God, we advance spiritually. The consequences of the inculcation of Bible doctrine, the consequences of its assimilation into our thinking, produces application in various different spheres of our life. This is where I started off last week. I want to add some comments to this. And we looked at the fact that this begins, application begins first and foremost in terms of our own personal life. In terms of our own personal growth, it has application in terms of putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the sin nature. It has to do with putting aside human viewpoint thinking or what the Bible calls worldliness or cosmic thinking. And it has to do with uh, uh, trusting and relying upon the Lord in terms of the angelic conflict. So we personally are dealing with these three enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil. But application is not private. We are not islands. We are not just individual believers. You don't break down the body of Christ into its individual parts, and we just sort of go through time uh, individually. This is where you've had a negative impact of American, uh, sort of the American worldview of, of, uh, of uh, rugged individualism impact Christianity, where each Christian is isolated, operates on his own, and we just sort of bump against each other every now and then at church. But the whole issue begins and ends with this personal issue, and it involves, and of course the distortion here involves a distortion of privacy. See, it not only affects us personally, the Bible says, but when we are filled with the Spirit, it talks about in Ephesians 5:19 and following that it has a consequent impact, not only in our personal life, but also in our in our marriage, so it impacts Christian marriage, uh, husbands' responsibilities to wives, wives' responsibilities to husbands, parents to children, and ch- children to parents. So it impacts marriage, it impacts family, but it impacts our relationship with society at large. And that involves our uh, relationship with employees or employers. So that this a- expanse goes out from our personal life and moves out through these progressive stages of involvement. And when it comes to society, it also impacts our role in relationship to government and politics. Now, that's going to differ from culture to culture, nation to nation, and and history, because uh, an individual's relationship to government is not defined necessarily by Scripture, although the overarching purpose is, the framework is, but ultimately, it's defined by the kind of government that you have in any particular society. For example, in ancient Rome, under the Roman Empire, uh, an individual citizen did not impact government policy, government decisions, legislation, things of that nature. You didn't have one man, one vote kind of a setup. And even though you had extremely harsh rulers, such as Nero, Paul, under Nero's, or during the time of Nero's reign, pens his uh, very famous uh, discussion of the uh, role of the believer to the authority of the nation in 
Romans chapter uh, 12. And there, or excuse me, Romans chapter 13, where he says, Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, that includes Nero. That includes Brezhnev. That includes Lenin. That includes any number of evil rulers. And this is something that people have to take into account when they are looking at at, uh, their responsibilities as a believer, is that God is the God of history. Jesus Christ controls history, and he establishes the national authorities. And even when there is a tyrant in power, uh, that does not mean that the individual believer has an inherent right to rebel against that tyrant. That goes against Revelation, I mean, Romans 13. So we have... Uh, different uh, arenas. For example, now in the United States of America, if you're a citizen here, you have certain responsibilities that are incumbent upon you as a citizen of the United States that involve political involvement. You need to vote. You need to be aware of the issues. You need, as a Christian, you need to be involved. You need to understand a biblical frame of reference for how you evaluate policies and candidates. The issue is not, are they a Christian? That's the superficial approach, because you can have somebody who's a believer but is in reversionism or doesn't understand the first thing about uh, divine institutions, doesn't understand the first thing about biblical absolutes, and they are the worst person you can put in power. And then you may have somebody who is an unbeliever, but they have... Uh, they understand uh, concept of absolutes. They understand uh, divine establishment and divine institutions, and they may be a much better candidate. You may have candidates who are good in some areas and weak on other areas. So you have to go through the process of evaluating what's important, what's not important, what's more important. Where are the issues today? What are the battles the most significant battles going on in our time. And if you go to the polls and vote because of what some politician is going to do for you or has promised to do for you, then you need to basically stay home because you're using self-centered arrogance as your ultimate criterion. And I don't care what the situation is. You don't have any right to vote. You vote on what's best for the nation from a position of objective biblical principle and not what's what's best on you or your individual minority or subgroup or whatever it may be. I remember personally... Uh, back in about 1974, we had an election for governor in the state of Texas, and there was a liberal who was promising uh, teacher pay raises, and there was a conservative who, of course, was not because the conservative believed in balancing the budget and a number of other things. And I couldn't believe the teachers who would vote for the pay raise, despite the fact that, all, that there were numerous other policies that uh, this particular candidate would have put into effect, that were negative for education, negative for social programs, negative on other things, simply because this person was going to benefit their particular uh, group and they were going to uh, have a little more money in their pocket. If, you, if a person votes on that basis, uh, they lack integrity, they lack objectivity, they're voting from a subjective viewpoint, and they are ultimately an enemy to the Constitution, an enemy to the nation. And this is what happens when a society is in deterioration, is that people vote what's good for them 
because they can't vote for what's good for the nation because they've lost an objective uh, criterion. They have no objective evaluation point uh, by which to um, evaluate. And many times, if you're a believer, you find yourself in the unfortunate position of mostly voting for, you're not really voting for the candidate you're voting for, you're just hoping he gets in because he's not as bad as the, as the other guy. And uh, you know that you will decline at 100 miles an hour if one guy gets in, and will decline at 70 miles an hour if the other guy gets in. And so you're, you're just putting the brakes on a little bit, and unfortunately that's where we find ourselves. So last time I talked about the role of believers in the local church and functioning as salt and light in the nation. What are the boundaries? How do we know what to do? And should we be doing things? And the conclusion was, yes, we need to be involved, not as a church per se, but as, a, as believers. You need to be knowledgeable. There are a number of, uh, today we live with, with, with the Internet, you have a number of different websites that offer a lot of, of uh, uh, information and I was just on the, last week I got started on this because we had attended the Concerned Women for America meeting down in uh, D.C. And even though there are some things that they are pushing that are not things that I would push or not my priorities, nevertheless they have some good things. One thing that I noticed on their website, which is uh, www.cwfa.org, is that you can click on and find your representative, type in your zip code, gives you your representative, your senator, and list all the various bills before the Senate and before the House. And you can go in and you can you can click on the link for the bill, and it will take you to the bill. You can read the bill. You can click on another uh, link, and you can get an email form to send a letter to your a congressman or a senator. And, you know, it's not like the website's telling you how to vote or what to say. But it's a great place to go to communicate, to find out what's going on, to see how these people have voted, what their record record is uh, on their on their votes, so that you can be knowledgeable when it comes time to vote. Those were some of the things I emphasized last time. Now I want to add some things and talk about some other issues related to this this morning, all under the category of how the church works in terms of working out its own sanctification. As, it's, as you as an individual believer advance and mature in the spiritual life, you impact that the arenas in your life in which you are involved. So first and foremost, we've seen that the believer's primary responsibility is to his own spiritual life. Your primary responsibility is to your own spiritual growth. That means, number two, you have to be careful that involvement in politics it does not become a distraction to your own spiritual life. But see, that can affect any detail of life. Maybe you like to golf. Maybe you like to, uh, maybe you have other hobbies. Maybe you are uh, involved in work to such a degree that that becomes a distraction to your life. Maybe you enjoy gardening or working in the yard or whatever it may be. Everybody has different interests, different involvements. Whatever you're involved in in life can become a distraction to your spiritual life. So there has to be an emphasis on on balance. You can't do everything at the same level. You can only do uh, some things well. Some people are able to be more involved in 
uh, political, legitimate political activity and political involvement at the grassroots level. Others can't simply because of family responsibilities, work responsibilities, or other details. Point number three. Political development should never threaten your tranquility or your inner happiness. You may work hard for a candidate, you may pray hard for a candidate, and the other person gets elected. And that should not shatter you. That should not affect your spiritual momentum, your spiritual growth. It's easy to go into reaction. And this happens a lot with Christians because as a Christian, you know the truth. You know where things are going. You know what the absolutes are. You know what the problems are. You have a a perception of what is what, what reality is that the average voter in America does not have. And so if the wrong person gets in because you know they're operating on human viewpoint, perhaps they're, they have an anti-Israel policy, an anti-Zionist policy, perhaps they have other uh, platforms that you know are contrary to uh, divine establishment. For example, they don't take a strong stand against same-sex marriage. This is a crucial issue uh, facing society today. Once we see the breakdown of divine institutions, you know that the nation uh, will eventually deteriorate. So it's easy from a, an objective vantage point to get our eye off of the Lord and His control of history and to become disillusioned, disenchanted uh, with uh, certain political developments. We have to remember that Jesus Christ controls history. Fourth point, we have to remember that we live in a nation that has provided the greatest freedoms, the greatest opportunities of any nation in all of history. That is not to say that America is always right and has always done the right thing. But you can be very proud of your family and your heritage, and every family is flawed, every human being is flawed. And that's not the issue. The issue is that under our form of government, we have had the greatest privileges, the greatest freedom, the greatest opportunities of any nation in history. We have provided a haven for the Jews. From the very beginning, this country has been pro-Jewish. We have not been anti-Semitic. Sure, there are elements at times that have been more anti-Semitic than others. We have a State Department that from the early part of the 20th century has had a horrible uh, tendency to be anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist, and this has had uh, certain negative uh, consequences, and we need to be careful of that. But for the most part, we've provided a haven for the Jews, we have also provi- nationally provided the environment within which Christians can either grow or not grow. Under the concept of uh, individual liberties, we have the freedom to either study the Word and grow and advance spiritually or not. We have the freedom to evangelize. We have the freedom to proclaim the gospel, to teach doctrine. We have the freedom to train and develop missionaries and to send those missionaries to other countries and other cultures. And this is one of the things that has made this nation great, and one of the reasons God has blessed this nation is because of those freedoms and because of those developments. And this is one reason this nation is seen as a client nation that God is using to impact the world, to bless the world by means of association. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that despite all the problems that we see today, as our nation does deteriorate and is is uh, 
uh, admired in the morass of moral relativism and secular humanism and New Age mysticism, that there are still uh, thousands, tens of thousands of Bible-believing Christians who are accurately uh, applying the word and are involved in, in missions and many other areas. And as long as that is going on, I believe God is going to continue to uh, bless this nation, despite the fact that we will go through the various cycles of civilization. Now, as we have all this for a base, as a believer living in the early 21st century, we have some real challenges before us in terms of our interaction with our culture. And this is my... Um, my fifth point, how do we respond to the judicial activism, the social activism, the political activism of those who are operating on a pagan worldview? They're operating on secular humanism, New Age mysticism, moral relativism, and postmodernism. And we live in a world that has, in the last 50 to 100 years, become more and more distanced from our Judeo-Christian heritage. In fact, the watershed year is 1962. Now, you'll listen to a lot of shallow, superficial Christians who will say that the reason for that is because in 1962, we couldn't pray anymore. I heard some idiot on the television this week saying that. Well, you did have a Supreme Court decision in 1962 that took prayer out of the public schools. But it had to do with a prayer written by the uh, New York uh, public school system that was a garbage prayer. You know, and we weren't being blessed by God because we were praying in the schools. The decision in 1962 in the Supreme Court was a consequence, not a cause. See, it was just one of numerous things that happened in the early 60s that revealed the fact that we had divorced ourselves from our Judeo-Christian heritage. And in fact, many uh, church historians, those who uh, study the history of ideas, mark that period of 1962-1963 as the end of the Puritan influence in America. And, and that began the post Christian era in America. But it wasn't because prayer was taken out of the public schools. That was a just one of numerous consequences of uh, thought shifts that had been going on for the previous uh, hundred uh, years or so since the middle of the 19th century. So how do we as believers respond to this? Now, we don't want to overreact into Christian activism. See, you have to understand that what you do and how you do it is as important as the results you want. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. So a right thing has to be done in a right way. And what you see is that Christians tend to always, because we're never taught, because we're so superficial, and we're always reacting in emotion to, in self-righteousness to negative trends, what we end up doing is getting involved in... uh, illegitimate Christian activism. And I mentioned this last time, and I want to talk about just what activism is and what activism is not. Essentially, Christian activism is the inordinate use of the world's methodologies to achieve a Christian impact or Christian result. 
And see, what you see, a classic example of this is what took place in the, eight, I mean, in the 1980s and early 90s with, a, with an anti-abortion, with a Christian anti-abortion group called Operation Rescue. And Operation Rescue went to the extreme of whether they officially endorsed bombing abortion clinics or not. They certainly set the ideological framework for it. And with all of the, with marching, demonstrations, um, all kinds of illegitimate activities under which are classified as civil disobedience. Now, when you get into passive, um, passive resistance, Civil disobedience. These are methodologies that came into the political sphere through whom? Who was the first person in the 20th century to really maximize the use of, of nonviolent resistance? It was Mahatma Gandhi. So here you have a Hindu operating on pure paganism who develops this methodology of resistance and civil disobedience. So it has, it has a, a, an effect. It le- leads to getting the British out of India and a number, number of other factors. So it has, it, it achieves results. Okay, you get a bunch of airhead Christians who come along and say, let's follow that same methodology. So you're going to use the devil's methods to accomplish so-called Christian ends. Well, that's just erroneous. We have to build our, as I keep saying over and over again, we have to build our understanding of everything in life from the Scripture. Political involvement, Political philosophies, uh, legal philosophies, social uh, standards, everything has to start from the Scripture. So we have to see what the Scripture says about these kinds of things. So let's look at some examples of civil disobedience in the Bible, because there are examples of civil disobedience. Now, let's, let's set the state. So we're going to go through a number of passages. Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. See, we have to learn to read these things and, and see what they say and what they don't say because what will happen is you'll see somebody who comes along, some Christian activist, and they really distort this. So we have to build our case biblically. situation is the... Uh, Jews are now in Egypt, the descendants of Jacob, and they have become slaves. The Pharaoh whom Joseph did not know or didn't know Joseph has now come into power. The Jews have become enslaved, and there is a prophecy known that a deliverer is going to be born among the Jews. This is, of course, foreshadowing what will happen with the birth of, of the Messiah. As a result of this, the, we're told in verse 15... Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphrah, the name of the other was Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, then they shall live. Okay, this is going to use, we're going to operate here a population control, and we're going to prevent the coming of this deliverer. And so they're basically told by the authority. Let's put this on the overhead. Here you have the civil authority here, C.A. In this case, the king of Egypt. And the king of Egypt specifically addresses these two individuals. And we can assume that if there's a population of about 2 to 3 million Jews, that they aren't the only two midwives. 
but they must have been in charge of the uh, midwife guild. And so this would apply to them as well as all of the other midwives. So it's a direct order. I'm going to put D-O here for a direct order telling them to murder these infants. Okay, and what do they do? Do they uh, get the guild together and let's march on uh, the Pharaoh's palace and we're going to have a sit-in and we're going to uh, have all of our placards up and we're going to organize everybody and change things. That's not what they do. They just say, great, fine, that's, that's great. And then, um, then they go out and when they're giving uh, a birth, they just don't do it. They don't violate what the principle of, uh, of God. That, that God has said not to commit murder, although that's uh, clearly articulated in the Mosaic Law, not at this point, but murder is still wrong. They know that. And God has said that they should not murder, so they're not going to murder. But they don't react to the Pharaoh. They don't make an issue out of it. They just say, fine, they go home, and they do what is right before God. And then they're going to get called on the carpet for it because eventually it becomes clear there's a lot of male babies that aren't being killed. And in verse 19 we read, And the midwives, verse 17, verse 17, the midwives, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, verse 19, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. So they basically rationalize and cover their tracks and say, Well, we just didn't get there in time. Uh, therefore, verse 20, God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. Uh, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So there's, this isn't civil disobedience in the sense of going out and uh, staging demonstrations or sit-ins or riots or things like that. They simply say it's a personal decision made by each individual as to whether or not you're going to do what the civil authority says. The civil authority is mandating a course of action, and the individual is saying, that violates Scripture, I'm not going to do it. Okay, let's look at another example of so-called civil disobedience. Turn to Daniel. We've got three great examples of civil disobedience in Daniel. Daniel's a great book for this, because here you have Jews who are living in the midst of a pagan Empire. They're living in the midst of Babylon and later the uh, the Persian Empire, and they have to apply doctrine uh, as a minority within that pagan uh, system. And the same, you can see how the principle applies to us as believers. We're not of the world, but we're living in the world, and we have a direct application. So the first situation they faced was was had to do with the diet, as uh, Daniel and his. Um, Peers were taken captive in 605 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and transported back to Babylon. They're going to go through a retraining and re-education program. They're going to get a, be part of the uh, public education system, and they're going to be inculcated with the pagan uh, values and the pagan education of the 
Babylonians. And along with that, the Babylonians have set a particular diet for them. Their uh, FDA program had decided what the best diet was for uh, these men, and that was what they had to eat. But it violated the Mosaic Law. So once again, you have the same situation. You have a civil authority, in this case the um, king of Babylon, giving a direct order to believers to, in this case, to eat certain things that were prohibited specifically by the Mosaic Law. So how did they respond? Did they gather together? And uh, uh, Azariah, Mishael, and and um, Hananiah get together. That's the original names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did they get together and organize all the students together and say, okay, we're going to have a sit-in and we're going to protest this. We're going to uh, go outside and march around the uh, uh, king's palace. No, that's not what they did. Look at verse 8, Daniel 1, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart, they made a personal decision that they were not going to disobey God. No matter what happened to them, they would not disobey God. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. See, he's using... Good common sense. He's not going to make an issue about it. He's not going to create a scenario that's going to uh, generate a reaction from the person in authority. He's not going to challenge their authority. He is going to work within the system to request the opportunity to follow the biblical uh, mandate. And so he personally goes to the chief of the eunuchs and... uh, Probably, it doesn't say this in the text, we probably prayed about it ahead of time. And we're told in verse 9, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed you food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? So he said, wait a minute, I'm not going to do this. It will be my head on the platter if this doesn't work. So Daniel presents a case. He says, okay, let's have a little test case. We'll have a 10-day test, and we'll eat according to the, uh, our dietary requirements, and then at the end we can be examined. Verse 13, then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. In other words, give us a try. Let, let's try it out. We'll have a little experiment. In the end of 10 days, we'll, you examine us and see if we're doing okay. So he did. And they tested him for ten days, and at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better, verse 15, better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. And so this was one way in which that situation was handled. We see another example of civil disobedience in the third chapter of Daniel. And here you have a situation where Nebuchadnezzar erects his statue of gold, and he's going to bring all of his subjects out on the plains of Dura, and mandate that they all bow down and worship this idol when the orchestra plays. And so, once again, you have a civil authority giving a direct order to each individual to bow down and worship. And this violates, of course, the believers. Uh, they don't want to, and so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, don't do it. They don't make an issue out of it. They don't gather all their friends together and have a sit-in. They don't march on uh, Babylon. 
they don't have a million man march or a million woman march or a million kid march or a million dog march. They just gather together and, uh, and they just don't obey the command, which once again, it's a command to specifically violate a mandate of God. They're not saying, oh, well, there's some principle that, that this just doesn't fit some biblical principle. There's a specific mandate of God that is being violated by this uh, civil law. And so they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar questions them, and their response is given in chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, see, they don't know that the Lord's going to deliver them. They, they, they know he might, that he could, but they're, they're, they don't know there's going to be a miracle. And so they say, but if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And, of course, we are all familiar with what happened, that they were cast in the fiery furnace, and it was so hot that the guards that put them in were killed in the process. Yet God miraculously preserved them. And when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, he saw one like the Son of Man with them. And the Lord Jesus Christ decided to spend a little time in warm fellowship with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, once again, let's look at the pattern. This is so important to observe. You have the civil authority specifically dictating, mandating, legislating a course of action to a believer. And that believer has to decide whether or not to do what the government is telling them to do or to do what God says to do. Now let's go to a New Testament example of this. New Testament example, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been witnessing and evangelizing their fellow Jews. On the day of Pentecost, 5,000 were saved. On a little while later, 4,000 were saved. So they're having a phenomenal impact in and around Jerusalem. And the Sanhedrin's getting a bit worried. And so they are arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin and... Um, the Sanhedrin has to decide what they're going to do uh, about them. And so we see their deliberations in chapter 4, verse 15. And verse 16, they, the Sanhedrin, speaking uh, among themselves, says, well, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done, that is, they healed the uh, lame man outside the temple, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So here again you have a civil authority, the Sanhedrin, and they're giving a direct order to some believers to not witness. Now, of course, that's in direct violation to a specific mandate from the Lord Jesus Christ to witness. So now the individuals have to decide what to do. So did the disciples go out and get the, the these two go out and get the other uh, nine? Remember, Judas is gone now, so you only have 11. 
get the other nine and say, let's march on the temple, let's march on the Sanhedrin, let's have a sit-in, let's uh, pass around, uh, uh, let, 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 let's get out here and make sure that everybody gets all riled up and have a riot. No, they don't do that. What they do is given in verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. In other words, you're telling us to do one thing. God says to do the opposite. Who do you think we ought to obey? Verse 20, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, that is the Sanhedrin threatened them, typical bully technique of anti those who are against Christianity, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. So here you have another example of so-called civil disobedience. Where, uh, But what we see is it's not civil disobedience in the modern sense in which that term is used. See, what happens in the modern realm is this. You have the civil authority doing something that are allowing, through legislation, are allowing certain kinds of action to be legal. And over here you have believers. What happens is they're not, in, in most of these cases, the civil authority isn't dictating a specific course of action to believers. Let's take the abortion issue that was so prominent with the um, Operation Rescue Crowd. You did not have a case of the government dictating to specific individuals that they have an abortion. The government wasn't saying you have to have an abortion. You have the civil authority. Let's, let me move this slide up. You have the civil authority was simply making it possible. It was simply allowing or permitting a course of action. And over here you have person X who decides, okay, under the principle of law, I'm going to have an abortion. And then you have person Z, who's not involved in this at all. He's neither part of the civil authority or the individual who's decided that they're going to make this decision, coming in and interfering as a third party to try to stop it. See, that's not, that is illegitimate civil disobedience or getting a bunch of other people riled up. The case you have in Scripture is when the civil authority dictates a specific course of action to the believer that is contrary to the specific revelation of God, the believer then simply decides who they're going to obey, God or the government. And then they pick their course of action and accept the consequences. They don't go out and get engaged in, in civil disobedience. Now, in this country, we have the privilege under law of taking certain courses of action that when legislators pass certain laws that we deem to be uh, inappropriate, wrong, uh, violation of uh, what we perceive to be the truth as believers, we have the right to influence through legislation, through writing, through uh, political action groups to influence legislation. We, these are legitimate. These are legal these are ethical ways to handle the situation. And we as believers are no different from any other segment in society, and we have a legitimate right to be involved in those because that's part of the political structure of the United States of America. 
And so we should be involved to whatever degree we can, whatever uh, level we can, and without it being a distraction to our own spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. And that is not illegitimate. We, it is completely legitimate to be, be biblically active. There's nothing wrong with signing a petition. There's nothing, but, but you're doing it as a citizen in the United States. You're being involved in the process. And that is legitimate. If Christians are silent, then we bear a responsibility for what may go wrong if that silence has an impact on it. There's an old saying that I've heard for years attributed to a Texas Ranger that the only thing necessary for evil to win is for good men to do nothing. And unfortunately, too many Christians, because they're so heavenly minded, they've become no earthly good, and they've basically removed themselves from the political impact. That's too worldly. Now, that hasn't been the case in the last 20 or 30 years. There's been more and more of an emphasis from the religious right and the fundamentalist right and the moral majority, etc. Unfortunately, there's also the illegitimate overreaction where you get into a lot of Christian activism. There's a balance, and there's a legitimate role for believers to be involved because they are believers and because they are at the same time citizens of this nation. But we have to be careful. All of that was all discussion of point number five, which has to do with the fact that we should, do, we should be involved but avoid Christian activism. Point number six, we have to recognize that Christians who have access to absolute truth and therefore an absolute standard for evaluation can easily slip into arrogance and the illegitimate challenge of a nation's authority because they correctly see the injustice that's going on. You can, that's very easy. I would imagine that there are times, even in the last week, when you've seen things on the news and you got out of fellowship. Uh, you know, that didn't happen to me more than a hundred times. Um, but if we look at things, look at how Jesus responded to the illegitimate and illegal activities of the Sadducees and the Pharisees when they brought him before various illegal trials and they, uh, they arrested him in an illegal manner and they brought him before these illegal trials and uh, judged him to be guilty of that which he was not guilty of and hung him on the cross. He, scripture says, he, like a lamb before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So he does not react out of arrogance or self-righteousness. Furthermore, look at Peter and John and how they respond. They don't get into uh, illegitimate reaction in Acts 4. Look at how Paul responds. Eventually he's arrested uh, and he's put in prison and he was beheaded. But we don't see that kind of uh, negative reaction where he's going to gather the troops together and march on uh, the emperor's palace in order to get, uh, get freedom. You don't have people doing that kinds of things like they did to get Nelson Mandela out of prison in South Africa. See, that's using the devil's methods to do things, and then we baptize it and say that the end justifies the means. The end never justifies the means in any course of action whatsoever. Right thing must be done in a right way to be right. And this leads to point number seven, which is the challenge of living in a society that is in failure. We live in a society that is deteriorating rapidly and is disintegrating 
from the inside out. And this is all part of the trends of civilization. In 1787, there was a classics and history professor at the University of Edinburgh by the name of Alexander Tyler. And he was asked about the fall of the Athenian Republic. And this was his answer. He said, quote, A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover that they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits. You know, a chicken in every pot and a car in every driveway. Uh, who, uh, they always vote for the candidate who promises the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to its loose fiscal policy, which all, is always followed by a dictatorship. This is the cycle. You can see it operating again and again and again. He went on to say the average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. And during those 200 years, these nations always progressed through the following sequence. They went from bondage to spiritual faith, then from spiritual faith to great courage. From great courage, they understood liberty and they moved in the direction of liberty. Once they had their liberty, then they experienced abundance and prosperity. But once they had abundance and prosperity, they became complacent. So you move from abundancy to complacency. And then, once you become complacent, you move to apathy. And then from apathy to dependence. And from dependence, back into bondage. That's the cycle. Now, recently, in commenting about this, Professor Joseph Olson of Hamline University School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota, points out the following in relation to our own history. In the presidential election of 2000, uh, Al Gore received, in the terms of the population of the counties that were won by Gore, uh, he got 100, the the population of the counties was 127 million. The population of the counties, the total population of the counties that President Bush won was 143 million. The square miles of land won by Gore was 580,000 square miles. The square miles of land won by Gore was two, I mean by Bush was 2,427,000 square miles. Uh, Gore won 19 states, Bush won 29 states. Now here's where it gets interesting. The murder rate per 100,000 residents in counties won by Gore was 13.2 per 100,000 residents. By Bush it was 2.1. What a difference. In conclusion, Olson adds, in aggregate, The map of the territory Bush won was mostly the land owned by the tax-paying citizens of this great country. Gore's territory mostly encompassed those citizens living in government-owned tenements and living off government welfare. Olson believes the U.S. is now somewhere between the complacency and apathy phase of Professor Tyler's definition of democracy from apathy to dependency, and then from dependency back into bondage. 
with Olson claims that some 40% of the nation's population has already reached the government dependency phase. Thus, we vote for whoever's going to give us the most. We're voting for selfish reasons, subjective reasons, and not objective reasons. Point number eight. Only the believer operating on external absolutes can have an impact on this negative trend. We do it first through our personal spiritual growth. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. We do it through application of doctrine in our marriage and families. We do it from application of doctrine in the workplace. We do it from application of doctrine in the political process. That's functioning as salt and light. And above all, we must do everything with prayer. And before I close in prayer this morning, I need to read a letter to the congregation. To the Preston City Bible Church Board of Deacons and my beloved congregation. Circumstances of life frequently change. Nevertheless, God is always faithful and God always provides. Almost seven years ago, God brought us together. During these years, we've all grown and matured in our spiritual life, ministry, and understanding the priority of Bible doctrine. These have been seven wonderful years. However, the time has come for me to resign as a pastor-teacher of Preston City Bible Church, effective in November. This has been a decision that has not been entered into lightly. As most of you know, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2000. At that time, my mother was a primary caregiver. In February 2002, the Lord promoted her to heaven. Since I have no siblings and no extended family in Houston, responsibility for his care has fallen solely to me. By God's grace, I've been able to care for my dad from a distance of 2,000 miles and taking five or six trips a year to Houston. God has faithfully provided help, and my dad continues to do well and to live at home, but we all know that won't last forever. Attempts to move him here have proved impractical or inadvisable. Scripture clearly places responsibility for the care of elderly parents on the family. This is part of honoring our parents. Jesus delegated responsibility for the care of his mother to the Apostle John. Paul warned that those who do not care responsibly for their family are worse than unbelievers. Therefore, I have known that unless circumstances changed, I would need to move back to Houston eventually. This last April, God raised up a group of believers in Houston who started a new church based on the tape ministry from Preston City Bible Church. In just a few months, God has brought them to a level of stability which enables them to call a pastor. They voted unanimously this last Sunday, and I have accepted their offer. This provision allows me to fulfill my biblical responsibilities to my father and to continue to serve the Lord with my spiritual gift. Just as God has provided for me and my family in this time, God will also provide a sound pastor-teacher for this congregation. This is just another test of faith for all of us. A time to exercise the faith rest drill and increase our momentum to spiritual maturity. God is always faithful. This is not a time for discouragement. It's a challenge. This is a time for everybody to pull together and to see how the Lord's going to provide. So I don't want to hear a lot of uh, whining and negative talk. This is going to be a great challenge. God has great 
provision for all of us, but it's a test of faith. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to be challenged by the eternal truths that are taught there. We also pray for the church here, our future provision of a pastor-teacher, future ministry in Houston, knowing that uh, as we go forward in your plan, you will always provide, and that these tests of faith simply give us opportunities to advance and mature and to see your provision. Father, we also pray for anyone here that may be unsure or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. All you need to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for your sins. And by faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. Now, Father, we just pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.